Hi, I'm Ryan Becker, and you're listening to the Rock Hill Seventh-day Adventist Church Official Sermon Archive. You can find more information about our church at www.rockhillsdachurch.org. We hope by listening to this message that you are encouraged and challenged in your walk with Christ. I am excited to be back here today. I'm excited to be alive. Yesterday I drove back from Ohio. It was an eight-hour drive. I got in at 11.30 last night after driving through the storms that have been slung by Harvey out this way. West Virginia um, at one point ha- had blown my car halfway into another lane, and I had to get back in line. And Virginia it was raining so hard I barely could read the road signs in between uh, windshield wiper. Uh, windshield wipers going back and forth. So I am praising God that I am back safely. And if you don't know why I was up there, I was up there doing a week of prayer for Spring Valley Academy. That is the academy that my my father graduated from back in 1976. And so it was really exciting for me to be able to walk those halls, to see where he went to school, and also to spend time with his brother and, and my family up there. And I got to speak for The elementary school, that school is a kindergarten or early five, which for most of us just means pre-K, all the way up to 12th grade. And so I would speak to the elementary school kids, then I would speak to the high school kids, which is a very, very big change in tone and depth. And then I would speak to the middle school kids, which is like a half gear shift down, and you'd sort of combine your message that was for the high school kids with with your message that was for the elementary school kids. And the theme was about tough love. And the theme wasn't tough love as in showing tough love to someone or being lovingly hard on someone. The theme instead was how do we show love when it is tough or when it is difficult. And so we wanted to be intensely practical as they're starting their year so that they could have a foundation of things to build on. And I want to share with you this morning one of the things that we talked about that I believe is very, very relevant for everyone. And James is an intensely, intensely practical biblical writer. And so I wanted today, as I, as I delve into this issue of, of how we use our words and how we have our conversations, I want to be just as practical. And so we're going to be going through a list of very concrete ways that you can leave here and improve your conversations and have more effective conversations. So today, the only thing I want you to hear as we talk about all of the different ideas, as we talk about different words we use and the way that they impact people, I don't want you to think that I'm taking theological stances on these issues, on anything that I bring up. That is not what today is about. Today is simply about loving people better through the way we have our conversations. It's reframing and rethinking those conversations. I want to tell you a story. It's very awkward for me to tell. It's never happened to me before. But I was in a restaurant this week called Marion's Pizza, and if you're a local to Dayton, Ohio, you know this place. Ohio pizza is very different from New York pizza and Chicago deep dish pizza. It's this... It's, it's very thin crust, and the way they cut it is not traditional at all. They cut it into basically like little squares, and so they'll give you like a nine-inch pizza, and it's cut into these tiny little squares. So if you've ever had bagel bites, just picture bagel bites, but higher quality, and you've got an Ohio pizza. 
And so we're at Marion's Pizza, and myself and the chaplain of Spring Valley Academy are waiting to order our drinks. Now I'm dressed up in a button-down shirt and just a nice pair of jeans because I was speaking to the high school students or to the school students, and he was dressed in office attire, but he was dressed with gray pants and a white shirt with the sleeves rolled up to his elbow, and his work backpack that he carries with him is this is from this Swedish company, and it's got this, it's dark green, it's got a lot of zippers on it, and its logo um, has the Swedish language around it. So we're standing there, we both have similar haircuts. I've got what you see here, and, and, and he has this, he has basically the same thing, but his hair is a lot thinner than mine. So it's a lot flatter, and just kind of hangs over the side. And while we're standing there waiting for our drinks, this older gentleman is standing to my left. I didn't actually even know he was there. He taps me on the arm and he says, hey, where are you guys from? I was like, what? I'm from Orlando, but I live in South Carolina, and he's, he's, he actually went to school here, so he's from here. And he said, oh, I, I thought you guys were some kind of European or something. I thought you guys were from somewhere. And at that point, the chaplain hears this part of the conversation and turns our way, and he says, yeah, and by the looks of your haircuts, you know, I, you, know you, guys, you guys are part of Trump's team, aren't you? And here's what he meant. You know about the recent protests and counter-protests that happened in Charlottesville. You know that white supremacists tended to kind of overshadow everything else that happened there. And here's what happened. Now that, now that the white supremacist movement is no longer anonymous, but people are willing to show their face in it, what has happened is a lot of people my age or a little bit older than me or even a little bit younger than me who carry this haircut were plastered all over the news. And what's, what we're seeing right now is that this haircut, short on the sides and longer and combed over on top, is being associated with the white supremacist movement to the point that in Colorado just a couple weeks ago, and you can look this up, a man getting out of his car with this haircut was stabbed as he stepped out of his car simply because his haircut. The man who ran up and stabbed him yelled, are you one of them Nazis, and then stabbed him. There was no conversation. There was nothing. He didn't even have a chance to respond, and the news images show blood on the door. The man, the man that was stabbed did survive. But what we're seeing is the haircut is being associated differently. And so this man assumed very, very specific things about us without actually asking first. And the second we said, no, we're, we're, not, we're not that way, and I don't mean to say anything bad about Trump here, that's not what I'm saying at all, it's just the, word, it's the wording that he used. I said, well, no, we're not, we, we don't believe that way, that's, that's not who we are. Uh, he, just, he just kind of sullied his head and walked away, as if disappointed to find out that we weren't on the same team as him. See, there are ways that we have conversations. There are ways that we assume things about people, and oftentimes those assumptions that we bring into conversations and that we bring into debates and arguments cause way more damage 
than they do building people up and than they do life. And so we're going to look a bit about that today in the book of James chapter 3. And we're going to be starting in verse 5. We're going to be starting in verse 5. Now I want to let you know the backdrop of this other than other than this just being an intensely practical book, if we consider Romans, Paul's kind of breaking Christianity down to its basics theologically, what James is doing is saying, I'm breaking Christianity down to its basics practically. Here are the things that you can do to live a practical Christian life. And in James chapter 3, he says, hey, don't be teachers. Not every single person should be a teacher. All of Facebook could use that message right now. <laughs> says, hey, don't be, don't strive to be a teacher because your tongue gets you into trouble. And so we pick up in verse 5. He says, so also the tongue is a small member, yet it boasts of great things. How great a forest is set ablaze by such a small fire. And the tongue is a fire, a world of unrighteousness. The tongue is set among our members, staining the whole body, setting on fire the entire course of life, and set on fire by hell. For every kind of beast and bird, of reptile and sea creature can be tamed and has been tamed by mankind, but no human being can tame the tongue. It is a restless evil full of deadly poison. With it, we bless our Lord and our Father, and with it, we curse people who are made in the likeness of God. Now, James will continue and say, basically, he'll explain why this doesn't work. Verse 10, from the same mouth come blessing and cursing. My brothers, these things ought not to be so. Does a spring pour forth from the same opening, both fresh and salt water? Can a fig tree, my brothers, bear olives, or a grapevine produce figs? Neither can a salt pond yield fresh water. In other words, James is saying, there's not room for both of these. You either get to bless all the time, or you're cursing all the time. But you, there is no space in the Christian walk for you to be speaking with a double tongue, for you to sit in here and praise God all day long or all morning long and then go home and curse others with the way you talk. He's very, very clear about this. And I want you to know that the first principle that is important about what James says here is he says, no human being or no man can tame the tongue. The first principle as we talk about conversations, as we talk about interacting with people, the first principle we must carry with us is to pray first. Before any difficult conversation, before talking about any controversial issue, before jumping in headlong to an argument that someone else is already having, the first thing that we must know is that we couch everything in prayer. If we do not pray before we jump into a difficult conversation, if we do not pray before we open up about something serious or something that could potentially be harmful, well, if no human being can tame the tongue, then you can guarantee that in some way, shape, or form, something you say will cause damage 
somewhere. And what James is saying is it's much easier to cause damage than it is to build people up. We're almost wired to do it. We tend to be critics of everything. We tend to be critical of everything. We see it in Houston right now with the criticism of Joel Olstein. Now, I'm not a big fan of Joel Olstein. I'm not a big fan of what he preaches and what he teaches. But the way that I've watched Christians attack a church is crazy. And even to the point that when they look at, I don't know if you've been watching the news this week, there's a man named, we call him Mattress Mac in Houston. He's opened up all of his warehouses, all of his stores, everything for people to seek shelter. No one had to ask him to. Where with Joel Holstein, his church didn't open until after there was social media presence about this. Yet Mattress Mac gave out his phone number publicly and said, come on down if you need a place to stay. And what I began to see online was comparisons. Well, Joel Olstein didn't do this or had to have this happen first, but Mattress Mac is doing this better. And there was no way, people just could not, people just could not praise Mac without criticizing Joel Olstein. In other words, even their praise, even their giving glory to Mac for what he's doing, giving credit to Mac for what he's doing, even that was still couched in criticism of someone else. Their praise was actually a criticism for someone else. We come from a posture of criticism. The first thing that we must do when we enter any difficult conversation, any difficult topic is to pray. The second principle that I want to share with you is this. If the tongue is so dangerous and our words can be so dangerous, the second principle I would tell you is this. Use it less. Use your tongue less. And I know that's coming from the man who's speaking to you for 20 minutes. I get that. Bear with me. It's got to start somewhere, I guess. But if we would just use it less. See, Adventists, and this this is something that happens. It's not an outright criticism of the church. It's just kind of what we do. When we're taught from a young age that you have the truth, we posture every conversation from the place that we are right and you are wrong. It's just easy to do naturally. We don't mean it to do it any harm. We don't mean to do someone any harm. But when we posture from there, then we listen to respond instead of listening to understand. We listen to teach instead of listen to learn. I know that when I've gotten in arguments online or in person, sometimes I'm listening just for the holes in their arguments so that I can prove them wrong. I've seen that in myself. And some of you may know exactly what I'm talking about. You may have experienced that yourself as well. And so I think the the second principle, the first is prayer. The second, slow down. And listen to understand rather than listening to teach. Because I believe by better understanding each other, teaching does naturally happen. I want to show you some of the ways that our word choice can be difficult or the way that we use our tones or otherwise can be damaging to people. I'm going to start with the most controversial one so we get that one out of the way. 
The LGBTQ plus movement, huge right now. As a civil rights movement and otherwise, it's, it's, it's gaining traction more and more from transgenders and otherwise. There's pressure on people to make statements publicly about what they believe on this issue one way or the other. The church is feeling this pressure and this pushback from society to do so. In fact, so much so that the evangelical church at large just released what is called the Nashville Statement. I don't know if you've heard about this, but 150 or so evangelical pastors, mainly megachurch pastors, have signed this document that has 14 articles in it that basically says we affirm the biblical unity of one man and one woman, and we deny that any homosexual or transgender relationship is appropriate. And the criticism they're getting for this is A, well, we already knew that, but B, in light of Charlottesville and in light of Hurricane Harvey, that's the issue you chose to focus on. In light of all of these people that need support and love in these two places, the stand that you chose to take, the soapbox that you chose to jump on, was to condemn this group and condemn this behavior. Sometimes it's not even just the words we say, but it's the timing behind them. But I want to equip you today with one way that we can improve the way we have conversations about homosexuality and LGBTQ plus issues. And it is simply one term the homosexual lifestyle. Those words, the homosexual lifestyle. Now, growing up, I would always ask teachers and pastors, and I would say, hey, um, what, what does the Bible teach about this? And the typical response that you get is, it's not that the orientation itself is the sin, it's acting on it, or it's the lifestyle. It's the homosexual lifestyle that's, that, that is the sinful thing. Here's the problem with that. And remember, I'm not saying anything theologically about this issue. I'm not telling you where to stand about the LGBTQ issues. I'm simply saying, how do we have conversations about this? The problem with using the term homosexual lifestyle is this. I am a straight man. You might be a straight man or a straight woman. We both live a straight lifestyle. We both live a heterosexual lifestyle. And I would argue to you that you and I live that lifestyle differently. If you're married, you live that lifestyle differently. If you're single, you live that lifestyle differently. And so for me to say heterosexual lifestyle, well, which lifestyle am I talking about? Because there's also the lifestyle that says I'm going to go out to the club every night and find a new person to sleep with. But I'm still heterosexual and that's my lifestyle. When we use a blanket umbrella term to discuss an entire group, what we end up doing is sacrificing the individual. And so if someone comes to you and they want to share, hey, this is my struggle or this is what I'm dealing with. I'm dealing with this, these confusing feelings and you tell me that the homosexual lifestyle is wrong. Well, if I am a homosexual, then what you've just told me is any lifestyle I choose is wrong. Even if I choose celibacy. Even if I choose not to be in a relationship with someone else, which is typically the, the teaching that we give. But what we said is just the state of being a homosexual means that you're going to live a homosexual lifestyle and we cast everyone under this one umbrella. And what we find is when we're sitting in a room with people that are still in the closet about this, that are still afraid to come out about this, they realize there's no way for me to comfortably have a conversation about this and be authentic and transparent. 
And I've watched this happen with friends. I've watched this happen with strangers. And we use that term, we don't use it to damage, we don't mean to damage, but it's unintentional. Because it's been ingrained in us, we think it's normal. And I'm, once again, I'm not saying that being a homosexual is, is a good thing. I'm not saying that having that orientation is a good thing. That's not it at all. I'm saying, can we reframe the way that we have this conversation? I'll hit you with another one. This one is less controversial, but it's the term salvation issue. What we do when we talk about salvation issues, what we say is if we're talking about something like women's ordination, or we talk about LGBTQ+, or we talk about the Sabbath, or we talk about swimming on the Sabbath, or playing sports on the Sabbath, or traveling on the Sabbath, we talk about some of these things, eventually the conversation goes so long, I almost want to call it Ryan's Law, like Murphy's Law or something, the longer a conversation about a secondary theological issue goes on, the more likely you're you are to hear someone eventually say, oh, well, that's not a salvation issue, that's just a distraction. They say, that's not necessary for your salvation, so why are we talking about it? Let's focus on the mission of the gospel, let's focus on sharing Jesus. And I get that. But I want to reframe the way we look at a salvation issue. Currently, we look at it as, this issue, is it necessary for our salvation? It's the way we currently look at it. What I would argue to you, and you can disagree, that's fine, you're allowed to, is I would look at a salvation issue as anything that affects someone's decision to be saved. Anything that affects someone's decision to be saved becomes a salvation issue for them. So if the way we talk about ordination, or the way we talk about homosexuality, or the way we talk about some of these issues, we say, oh, that's not a salvation issue, then what we do is we say, oh, well, what's important to you isn't really important, and you're wasting your time. For many women who will talk about ordination, they'll say, this is really important to me because I believe uh, this is connected to the value of a woman in society. And so when we say, oh, well, it's not a salvation issue, that's a distraction, what we're saying is my value of people is a distraction, or my value of myself is a distraction, and I just need to stop wasting my time. And even if you're right, even if you believe you're right in that, it's still devaluing someone without giving them the chance to share. It's not listening to understand, it's listening to teach. You see how I'm trying to reframe this in a way that creates better conversation, not a way that simply states where we stand in relation to others. Two students at Spring Valley Academy went through something very, very difficult just a few months ago. I shared with the middle school students my own testimony and I told them about my father dying when I was 17 and, and other things that have happened to me. The reason being that I told this to middle school students was because I believe tragedy doesn't care about what age you are. And so I think we need to teach about this when we can and when we're able to understand it. And I remember I was sitting with a sixth grade class and one girl said, I really appreciated your talk today because my father died two months ago. Two students, her and one other, her, her little sibling, and I don't know who it is. Their parents died of a drug overdose three months ago. Both died together in the house with their kids. 
and their kids in the morning called 911 because their parents wouldn't wake up. Anytime those two students are now in a room and someone is talking about drug addiction, the conversation changes. We like to think that sometimes these issues are out there and not in here, and so we talk about them as if they're out there and not in here, not realizing that there might be someone in the room who's struggling with the very thing that we can be so flippant about or talk about so easily or condemn so easily. We see it in the conversation about suicide when we say, oh, well, suicide is a cowardly act. Or suicide is a selfish act when we're finding out psychologically that it's a mental illness act. And that many, many psychologists are saying that instead of saying they committed or chose to kill themselves, they say they died by it. The conversation on suicide changes when someone in the room has experienced it. And I wonder how different our conversations would be if we could treat every single one of those topics as if someone is in the room with us, who is dealing with it and experiencing it. The reason being, I think sometimes we're caught off guard with the information we would assume to be true, but we don't know. I'll give you this. I learned this this week. Do you know that a side effect of antidepressants is suicide? When I learned that, it kind of blew my mind, because why? Why is the thing that's supposed to make me not depressed, why is, a, why is a side effect of that the very result of being depressed? The answer, antidepressants often give you motivation to do the things that you've been putting off. And for someone who is depressed, the thing they may have been putting off is suicide. And so it finally gives them the motivation and the energy to do it. But that seems so counterintuitive to us. And so we would talk about this issue completely ignorant to some things that we would have never thought about. We would have never considered. And when we listen to understand, suddenly the picture gets clearer, the picture gets bigger, and we learn more. And it's from there that we can begin to teach as we learn. The last area I want to give you today is in the area of politics. What we see when we criticize a president or criticize a candidate is someone inevitably from that candidate or that president's side of the argument will say, well, your candidate did this. Well, your candidate's no saint either. And we come from a posture of defense instead of a posture of understanding. I've had several conversations where people will look me in the eye and say, you better not be voting this way. You better not be supporting this candidate. And to those people, I've learned very quickly to say, I'm not going to talk about that with you. But I wonder how much willing, more willing I'd be, in fact, I know how much more willing I'd be to have a conversation with someone who says, Hey, Ryan, I'd love to hear your thoughts on this year's election. If you would be willing to, would you share them with me? And then maybe I could share mine with you, and I'd love to, to, to have that conversation with you. It's a completely different posture. It's a completely different stance. See, sometimes our conversations, our tongues, can get us into way more trouble than we want to be in. 
And I'm not saying that you and I are guilty of every single one of these. And in fact, some of these you may already have down pat, and if you do, awesome. So I hope that you don't think that I'm condemning you because that's not at all what I'm doing. But I wanted today to give us some practical teachings, some practical ways that when we walk out of here, we have conversations with people. I very, very much believe that the defining issue of my generation of pastors and ministry leaders is going to be the LGBTQ plus and the gender identity and sexual identity issues. That's going to be the big one that we have to wrestle with and figure out. And so it's really important for me personally to be able to know how to have better conversations about it. To learn about it as much as I can from all different angles and understand it. So for me, that one is a big one. For you, it may be politics. For another, it may be the way that you talk about theology, the way you talk about important issues in the church. And the principle behind this, if none of these are what you struggle with, then maybe it's something else. The question I would always have you ask prior to entering any conversation is, what posture am I taking? Am I listening to understand, or am I listening to simply respond? And I wonder how different, how different everything would look if we would love each other better in that way. I love this, in verse nine, with it we bless our Lord and Father, and with it our tongue we curse people who are made in the likeness of God. If we could just remember that the people we're talking to and the people we're talking about are people that were made in the likeness of God, that they are deserving of the same value, the same love, the same patience, the same forgiveness, and the same grace that we receive. Every conversation would look different. I want to challenge you today. If there has been an ongoing conversation with someone or if there has been an ongoing topic that you've really wrestled to, to talk about, or if you've taken a hardline stance on something. I want to challenge you today to rethink, just consider, perhaps tackling it from a different perspective, a different angle, and a different posture. Perhaps you need to rethink the way that you apologize to people. And instead of saying, I'm sorry, but you started it, we just say, I'm sorry. Or maybe it's instead of saying, eh, no problem, or eh, don't worry about it, we actually say the words, I forgive you. And we acknowledge that that person realizes that they've messed up. How different would our conversations look when we treat people as if they were made in the likeness of God himself. So go today and engage in better, healthier, and more edifying conversations than ever before.